This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Marketing Matters on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Marketing Matters here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm Barbara Kahn. I'm the J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing. And as usual, I'm here with my co-host, the Whitney M. Young Jr. Professor of Marketing and Brand Identity Theorist, Americus Reed. Hi, Barbara. Easy for you to say. Thanks. So. That's a, that's a, a wonderful lot. introduction. It's a lot of words. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but whatever. Uh, anyway, this is Marketing Matters, and we air live every Wednesday from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern, um, and we're replayed during the week. We have a really great show lined up for you today. I mean, I have been doing a lot of work in retail, mm-hmm. and I'm in the process of writing a retail book, <gasps> and our first wow. guest is Michael Dart, who's a retail specialist. Then we have our colleague from who's been out Wharton, and she's in customer analytics, mm-hmm. and um, Ellie Fight, who's going to talk about um, some of the things you can do with uh, analytics online and experimenting and stuff like that, so very useful. And our third guest is Ann Barr-Thompson, who's a brand identity theorist, too, wow. probably. I oh, don't know. Two of us. But wow. she, she worked at Interbrand, and she's really oh, nice. thinking about a lot of brand issues, so nice. I think that'll be really fun to have a conversation. So we're really excited about the show today. Wait a uh, minute. Before you jump into the last segment, uh, Barbara, we are going to oh. be, oh, thank you, uh, taking your calls, uh, so we're pretty excited about that, too close the show out uh, by hopefully sharing a little bit of our knowledge with uh, our listeners out there, talking a little bit about some cool marketing topics, perhaps perhaps even uh, reiterating some of the things that we learned from our guests today. So pretty excited about that. Yeah, so do stay tuned for that. We'd love to take your calls. But we clearly have a packed show tonight, uh, and we're really excited. Everybody really knowing a lot about marketing today, and we know (laughs) marketing matters. So let's jump right in and bring in our first guest, Michael Dart. He's a Wharton MBA. I want to just mention he's our alum. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Barbara, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Michael, I know you wrote a new book, and that's probably what you want to talk about. But before we do it, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? You're currently a partner in the private equity practice of A.T. Carney, but you haven't always been there, right? That's right. So um, uh, I'm a pretty much a consummate consultant. Sort of uh, After graduating from Wharton, uh, I joined Bain & Company, and uh, I was at Bain for about 15 years. Uh, ended up starting a business, uh, doing early-stage investing, and uh, then ended up back in consulting, advising private equity investors really looking to make uh, uh, investments in the consumer and retail uh, industry. So I've spent the last 15, 20 years basically doing that. Uh, so uh, pretty an interesting vantage point on what's going on in retail and consumer businesses. Yeah, so A.T. Carney is specifically uh, about retail, isn't it? Uh, actually, there's a broader footprint than that, but we have... Um, a very significant practice in the consumer and retail business, yes. Um, so, and, and across the board, all the way from uh, supply chain operations through to marketing effectiveness, uh, mergers integration, uh, you name it, we've sort of got a practice area there. Now, you wrote this book with Robin Lewis, is that correct? That's right, yes. So how do Robin, you know Robin? <laughs> Robin and I actually go back uh, a long time. Uh, uh, about 10 years ago, the Carlisle Group was having a consumer off-site and they wanted two speakers to come in and they invited Robin and they invited me 
and Robin and I hit it off, and actually uh, our thinking on the, the, the retail and consumer space was very aligned, so we said we should collaborate and write a book together. And so we actually mm-hmm. wrote the first one, which was The New Rules of Retail, and then uh, we've now... Uh, collaborated on the second one, which is Retail Seismic Shift. You know, so I think I've told you I'm in the process of writing a book, and uh, I wanted to title my book The New Rules of Retailing, but unfortunately you guys <laughs> That's already been taken, got Barbara. that. Yeah. It's my understanding. That so it's I was taken. thinking of calling it The New New. <laughs> no, that's not bad. I like that. Eyes will pop up as well next to yours with a bit of luck. <laughs> How about just calling like Fire and Fury, The New Retail? <laughs> the new, I don't know. I'm just, just saying. <laughs> but it is Really, I mean, part of the reason there's a couple books. Your your book, um, and you guys are obviously experts in retailing. And I know Scott Galloway wrote a book, and like I said, I'm trying to write a book too. And I think part of the reason we're all writing about it. It's a pretty exciting time in retailing, don't you think? Oh, it's an incredible time. I am, um, you know, for for those of us who've been around for some time, looking at the industry, the rate of change, the rate of innovation, uh, the level of creativity and new business models coming up with lots of different startups. Uh, to me, it's just a truly great time to uh, to be in retail. It's challenging, of course, for a lot of people, but mm. you put all of that together, and it's just the perfect uh, environment to think about, obviously, writing a book, consulting in, uh, I think investing in, if you look in the, the right spaces, uh, but it just is you know, incredibly dynamic, and obviously, it's a great time, I think, to start a business. Mm. Oh, well, that's interesting because some people might think it's a terrible time to start a retailing <laughs> business with Amazon uh, lurking around. That, that, that's true, but I think uh, if you look, um, there are a number of really innovative, interesting startups. Obviously, you're really familiar with Warby Parker right. as one. Uh, I think there's another Truant company, which recently got acquired by PVH, uh, where all of these entrepreneurs, they, they have a very different way of thinking about a market structure, a business, and then how to acquire customers and satisfy those customers mm. versus a lot of traditional retailers. So I think that there really are interesting opportunities, even something which you wouldn't think, like in the pet food space, somebody like Chewy, who you would think um, Amazon would dominate, have done an incredible job both in acquiring customers and satisfying customers in a, a differential way. Mm. That that business has just been an incredible success as well. So uh, I do think it all comes down again to a lot of the the DNA in the entrepreneur and their creativity and innovation. But uh, uh, there's a, a number of success stories out there. So let's talk a little bit about your perspective. And I mean, we can talk a little bit about how the world is changing, but I'm curious about your perspective. I, I purposely haven't read your book yet because I don't want it to influence me too much <laughs> when I'm writing mine, but I'm happy to speak to you about it. Like, I, I'm just curious, did you come at it as the perspective that you and Robin used in approaching this problem? Uh, based in your 10 years of consulting in the industry? Is that kind of what formed the way you think about it? You know, it, it, it is a lot of it. it. It's a combination for me because uh, I felt very strongly that to really understand what's going on with the consumer and retail, you also have to look very closely at what's going on in society. Mm. So my, my background, both from Wharton with finance and an undergraduate is economics as well. So I wanted to, to bring in a, a look at the way in which society is changing and all the influences on society and obviously we as individuals and consumers within that society and how that is manifesting itself in the retail space as well and how that, 
those changes, if you like, are driving a lot of the decision-making and ultimately are going to drive who's successful in retail as well by aligning to the way in which society and obviously the individuals are changing. So I looked because I, was, I knew I was going to talk to you. I did break down and look a little bit at your book. And I saw that you had all these changes, which I do want to talk to you about. But the la- it looked like the last part of the book was interviews you did with industry people. Yes. And so, try, so they gave a different perspective where it was just augmenting what you already thought? Hmm. Well, actually, you know, part of the starting for this book was um, research I was doing with a lot of uh, chief executives uh, around what's driving the change. Uh, and people were just, uh, almost every CEO we spoke to said, I'd love to come share with you my opinion, but I want to learn what everybody else is thinking hmm. because right now the level of change, the challenges that I'm facing organizationally are immense. And I don't feel like I've got a good handle on it. So that process actually led me to think I should write this book uh, as well, because coming out of those interviews, you'd learn a lot. But I didn't feel like there was an integrated narrative that connected all of the different forces that are driving uh, the industry changes and, and why things are in such turbulence. Um, and I, I wanted to offer that to the CEOs to say, uh, here's here's basically everything that comes out of that with my provocative spin on it. And then having done that, I wanted to put it into a book and offer it to a broader audience. So you'll see elements definitely captured from the interviews that we conducted. But a lot of the times they were almost questions that led me to think about researching the book and how to how to actually take it to a deeper level and, and try and figure out, well, what actually is going on really here? Okay, you got me curious. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you tell us what you came up with? Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, a whole number of things we could be talking about in terms of uh, what's driving the retail shift, but there were really three things which we thought were paramount. The first one is a supply and demand imbalance. The second one we called the great fragmentation of the consumer. Arguably, you could say it's the great fragmentation of our society as well. Mm -hmm. And then the third one, obviously, is the technology catalyst, which is uh, driving and facilitating a lot of the changes that underlie all of these. And so while all of those are discrete... Uh, they actually overlap and reinforce each other. So what do we mean by the supply and demand imbalance? Um, It's sort of no surprise almost to anybody. If you go into almost any uh, shop, any supermarket, any mall, you can just look at the abundance of product and selection that the consumer has. You know, my favorite example is to go down the drinks aisle and just Mm. see how many new drinks have proliferated over the last, you know, five years. You've got yerba mate you'd never heard of you have kombucha you've got all of the energy drinks and you've got the cold pressed juices and you got 20,000 waters <laughs> yeah, exactly. how many different varieties of water can you actually have right um, is that so, more more prevalent here in the u.s than globally or is it exacerbated here or is it true everywhere uh, i think it's um most prominent here i think it exists across uh, most of western europe as well and most of the developed economies that the consumer has this type of choice Obviously, as you think about different markets, different regions, uh, you'll see you know, distinctions coming out depending upon how strong the, uh, the middle class is and how much infrastructure has been developed. But, uh, but globally, you just have an incredible proliferation of product. Um, and arguably, the demand for that product is not keeping up. And in the book, we go into a number of different forces that are driving that, you know, whether or not it's just dematerialization of the economy in total. We're spending a lot more you know, on digital electrons than we are on physical atoms, whether or not you look at the demographic curve that's going uh, on right now in terms of just the, the number of working people to dependents, whether or not that's retired or, mm. or kids. It, it's, a, you know, a pretty big shift in, uh, in what's taking place. If you just look at the, 
overall productivity growth in the economy. We could keep going. Um, but demand itself is not, is not keeping up. And so one of the key things that comes out of that is if you have just simple supply and demand curves, the way it equilibrates in the market, of course, is price. Right. And what we've seen in almost every Can I interrupt sector, you for one second before we yeah, get into absolutely. that price part? It, and this is related not only to bigger assortments within stores, but I've heard the term used in the U.S. a lot that we're overstored. Yep. Are you making the distinction between those two things, or that's all part of the same thing? All part of the same thing. Hmm. I think we are overstored, and I think that we have, um, you know, enormous number of points of distribution, particularly as you add up all of the new new ways in which consumers are getting product. Um, and I think that one of the things that's happening is as prices are deflating in real dollars and have been, and uh, part of the argument that we lay out here is that that's going to continue. We make it a bold statement uh, that everything's heading to free. Uh, that, wow, that's, that's pretty bold. Wow. So like I, that, I actually would like that world quite a bit. <laughs> Let me just reintroduce you for a second, then I have a question to just challenge that a little bit. This is Michael Dart. He's a partner in the private equity practice of A.T. Carney, and he's an author of, or co-author with Robin Lewis of a new book called Retail Seismic Shift. It was published October 2017, and it's, he has a very interesting premise. He's an economist, and he was a finance major at Wharton MBA, and he's really talking about part of what's changing the retail seismic shift is, are the laws that economists talk about of supply and demand and that we have too much supply. Um, and that's part of what's driving the prices down. I think that's what you were saying. Do you think also, I mean, I've also heard that because of the recession and maybe because um, Generation Z and millennials are less materialistic and they want more experiences, mm. that the consumer is more price sensitive, not necessarily, I mean, that would be a different force leading to the same conclusion, but would come from a different place. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, that's definitely a, um, an accurate observation. You know, if you, if you go back to the comment I made about we're spending a lot less on uh, physical atoms versus digital electrons, part of the, that as well is, and, and in the spending less on physical atoms is we're buying a lot of experiences as well. So we spend a lot on technology, which is all the digital world, the entertainment, the social networking, etc. But we're also spending a lot more on experiences, and there's no doubt that the millennials... Uh, and actually, a very significant number even of the boomers value experiences much more than they value stuff. And that's, that's definitely taking place. And so uh, people, you know, they really know, I, I don't know if they're necessarily price sensitive in that way, but I think the consumer mm. absolutely knows the value of almost every product because, and the value in their life of that product. And so they will keep searching till they find you know, whether it's the polo shirt or whether or not it's a pair of shoes that really represents the level of value that they anticipate given that product. And given the proliferation of choice, the level of promotional activity, the selection out there, the consumer is able to find that. So that's why we keep seeing the price deflation. So, okay, so that's an economic argument. Now, I'm sure you know Jeff Bezos' famous quote, your brand's margin is my opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's yet another force that's that's forcing the, which is price, I mean, competitive competition in the market. You know, so you're talking, which I guess is related to oversupply. Right. You raise a great point, Bob, because I think if you have a really good brand, and actually one of the things we argue in the book is despite all of this, Brands will have tremendous equity and tremendous value. The challenge is you've got to get really, really close and authentic way to your consumer, and the brand aperture is much narrower than it's historically been. So the tendency for brands quite often is to they, they get their core consumer, their core target, and then they start thinking, okay, how can we expand the brand? 
And that's worked obviously very successfully with the lifestyle brands, you know, proliferating, you know, in the prior generation. Like Ralph Lauren. I'm sorry? Like Ralph Lauren. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What's happened, though, is that as the consumer uh, has more choice, and and one of the the second pivots in the argument is a great fragmentation, the consumers is fragmenting and wanting more and more unique identifiers that really specifically talk to them. Um, And our whole society, linking back to society, has been fragmenting in terms of income, you know, if you look at attitudes, if you look at almost any dimension, you get smaller and smaller cohorts. And so a brand now has to really talk very authentically to those. One of the, um, the best ads, I think, that worked so effectively was when Patagonia said, you know, uh, don't buy this jacket. It was a sense of, you know, that was an incredible marketing statement because it spoke very clearly to their core consumer. And at the same time, it was, it was basically saying we don't want people in it who don't really value this jacket or need this jacket. That's Patagucci, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Demarketing. Yeah, yeah right. That's uh, yeah. So there's still room for premium price brands if it's targeted right to this narrower niche. It, exactly. I think that's, that's one of the big challenges is finding how – how much space you have in a marketplace to be truly relevant to your consumer mm. and staying within that and really satisfying that because uh, one thing that's occurred partly because of the supply but partly because of the way in which technology is involved is there is an opportunity for a lot of other companies to rapidly emerge and, and I like to say this I think it's easier now to acquire customers than at any other time and it's more difficult to retain them than any oh, other Oh, that's time. very interesting. Mm. Have you talked to Pete Fader? He's a big mm. p- player in that space of customer acquisition versus customer retention. Exactly. So it's, uh, and so, so I think that you have to stay very tightly focused on that consumer and satisfying them and being incredibly relevant to them in this world of oversupply, price deflation. And, and you can then win in that environment, but it's, it's not the big aperture that a lot of people historically have thought. The the way I like to say it in food is we've gone from craft foods with a K to craft foods with a C. Mm. Oh, oh, that's cute. I like that. <laughs> that's going in class. <laughs> Not in my book. I won't steal it, yes, but in yes. class. <laughs> Just source me again. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Here's a question for you, Michael. This is America's. I, I, you know, you mentioned this very fascinating point of there being a, a desire for consumers in this consumer fragmentation point that's in the book to get increasingly unique and unique and unique um, experiences and offerings, if you will. So how does, how do, in the new age, in this new universe, how do brands walk that fine line between the tension of trying to stay authentic to core users, but also growing uh, at the rates that they would like to grow to bring in more people into the fray, so to speak? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, it's a, it's a great question. And it's uh... You know, it's not an easy answer. I think that if there's any compromising of your existing product, should we say, in terms of trying to to bridge into other segments, mm-hmm. and that could be the, both the product, the, the characteristics of the product, the quality, the fit, any any dimensions like that, as well as obviously how the brand is perceived, mm-hmm. I think it becomes much higher risk in today's environment for a brand to start reaching out like that. Mm. Um, and so I think that's something to be very really thoughtful about because. Uh, I, the days of an impulse purchase where you could start to add on things, mm-hmm. um, I think have gone. In the <laughs> book, we reference you know the, the heyday how uh, Porsche and Coca-Cola started to try and get into clothing. Mm-hmm. You know, just it, 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 people felt like you could just add anything onto a brand and it could naturally fit. And I don't believe that's the case. Mm. Um, 
I do also think that you have to be very thoughtful about how you speak to your consumer. Obviously, personalization is a great buzzword, but it really is true in the marketing uh, that personalization is becoming increasingly powerful. And if you have a great data analytics group, and if you can really understand what a consumer's bought, what's relevant to them, and therefore you're serving up ideas, content, product, or pricing that fits with that, that's, that is incredibly powerful. There's nothing, I think, more off-putting than getting a blast email mm. you know, from somebody claiming to know you and offering a whole array of products that clearly doesn't make sense. And so, so I think, oh, sorry, go ahead, finish your sentence. No, that, that was it. Okay, yeah. so you've talked about the, the uh, excess of supply. You've talked about the customer fragmentation. What about the structure of the market? You know, the, a lot of retailers go, or brands going direct and that kind of stuff and the partnership. Has, is that at play in this too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things which uh, uh, we say as well is that really the distinction between retailer and wholesaler will by and large just collapse if it hasn't mm. already collapsed. And those those words uh, will largely become redundant. In the same way, we we think the word store, which was written because people stored product there, will also become mm. redundant in the future because people aren't going to be storing product. But the wholesaler-retailer relation you know, the, is, is collapsing. Uh, every... Every brand, every product is trying to reach directly for the consumer. And obviously, the digitally uh, uh, native brands have been doing that and then spreading out with, you know, somebody like Bonobos, obviously going direct at first, partnering with Nordstrom, um, and now obviously it's part of uh, uh, Jet. Jet. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I know, I I don't know if you're going to be there. I know Robin's going to. Are you going to NRF next week in uh, New York City, the big show? Um, I probably not, but uh, it's a good question. It's uh, my schedule I'm playing around with a little bit. The reason why I said that is I saw in one of Robin's um, newsletters he came out, there's a whole track at NRF on the private brands, which is kind of what you're talking about. Mm. That's right. Uh, And how these, you know, that's what Warby does and Bonobos kind of has done it, but they have partnered with other brands too. Um, So uh, when you give advice, do you say that's a better route for a brand to succeed to go direct? Um, right now, I think uh, uh, absolutely yes. That you should. That doesn't mean you don't use all distribution platforms. One of the things you have to think about in this environment is all the different distribution platforms. How do you play with Amazon? How do you go direct? How do you think about uh, potentially doing pop-up shops inside existing retail space or even leasing retail space? Uh, the the interesting thing is, I think, with the advent of digital. The opportunity, again, to acquire customers and to be innovative, and particularly the tech-savvy millennial generation Mm -hmm. knowing how to do that and how to build communities and get the message out, gives a great opportunity to get to your consumer directly. But at the same time, to be relevant, I think you have to think broadly about all of the different potential partners. So what's your prognosis about Macy's and Mm -hmm. uh, Lord & Taylor and those department stores, or JCPenney's or Sears? Um. Well, I think that they're all very different and in different stages yeah. of evolution. I, I think I would say that the, this, you know, no obvious uh, insight here, the department store sector has, has been incredibly challenged, has been for a long time, for all of the reasons which we've been talking about, the abundance of supply, price deflation, the consumer fragmenting, mm-hmm. wanting a narrow definition, and the ability of technology-driven competitors. I believe there's a place for great brands and great service still, and mm. the orientation that you know a lot of those companies have had over the last few years is starting to be put in place 
and we'll see whether or not the results come through. What was encouraging for somebody, obviously, like Coles, you didn't mention them, but they'd actually had a pretty uh, pretty successful um, you know, year, and, and certainly the fourth quarter. Well, and Coles, I mean, so the, most of, except for, um, as I understand it, Barnes & Noble just tanked over the holiday, which is not a good sign for the future, because most of the other retailers did do well. Um, so it was a pretty bright holiday for a lot of retailers, and Coles in particular, as you're noting, did do well, and they did the interesting thing about having Amazon returns in the store. Do you have a reaction about that? Well, I think it's a, a really interesting idea, and and this is the type of creativity that I, I would encourage all retailers to, to be taking on. I think that most of those stores have too much square footage and suffer from a traffic problem. So if you think about those two things, what do you try and do? You try and leverage the square footage. In this case, you can give it to Amazon to be you know, handling returns, etc., and you're doing it. You could actually think about partnering with somebody else. I think there's going to be interesting uh, uh, innovation in terms of who else takes a lot of that space which will hopefully drive more traffic to those locations again. And so, so I do think it makes a lot of sense to be doing that. And uh, it will be interesting. I know it's still an experimental uh, stage. I think it's only about 80 stores uh, that they're doing it. But they, uh, the plan, I think, is to roll it out. And I think, by and large, it's been successful. Of course, the key metric that they'll be analyzing is, did, not only did we get the traffic, did the people actually then shop the coals and right. we get an incremental purchase? <laughs> right. right. The Sephora move in JCPenney turned out to be very successful, although I personally was a little dubious in the beginning, but it turned out to be a very big move, bringing the traffic into the store, and then it helped JCPenney as well. Um, exactly. Yeah. So maybe that's the same thing. A lot of people think that Coles is dancing with the devil, but mm-hmm. maybe it makes sense. So, you know, there's a lot of media, obviously, about Amazon. That, that you have 10 years of experience. We've got to tap into some of this. There's a lot of media attention on Amazon, a lot on the department stores. But the specialty retailers, and I saw you had uh, Asana CEO David Jaffe, who's also a Wharton grad, with one of your interviews at the end. So there was some talk about Limited, and Asana stores are Dress Barn and uh, Justice and things like that. That specialty retailer, J. Crew is another one. They were like the star, the darlings a little while ago. What do you predict is going to happen to them? Because they are going direct. They have their private brands. Well, I think, you know, one of the things which is definitely clear is that we live in a very unforgiving market. Um, and that if you have just a, a certainness, then boom, you get penalized very hard in the mm-hmm. capital markets. Mm-hmm. And so, so suddenly the bad news seems like it's a, an awful lot of bad news. Um, whether or not that truly reflects the underlying dynamics of that business, it, uh, uh, you know, it, to me is still an open question because under the surface, I know there's an awful lot of good work that's being done. There's an awful lot of creativity. And uh, you know, I, I sort of look at it and say, gosh, this could work. Now, the biggest problem I see, to tell you the truth, for all of those brands you've mentioned, is the macro issue that I, I outlined at the beginning. I do think just the pure supply and demand issue is causing um, a contraction. And I do think there has to be some sort of shakeout. So while I'm not obviously going to predict the, the winners and losers, you know, certainly <laughs> here now, uh, for a good, good set of reasons, um, I do think there will be some losers, and I do think we have to see a winnowing that takes place. Mm. And uh, one last question, because you are very interesting, very expert in this topic. So you're in private equity. So that's a lot, you know, J. Crew is private equity, then not private equity. Nordstrom's is trying to go private. And what's your take on all of that, private versus public? Well, I think um, managing a transformation outside of the public eye without having to, you know, constantly be seeing what. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. What the reaction is to this quarter's results mm. is pretty beneficial. So I look at somebody like Nordstrom, who I think, by the way, have put in place an amazing array of building blocks. Um, again, it looks like this uh, holiday season was pretty positive for them as well, which was good news. But they're playing in all the right sectors. Um, but I think going through that transformation outside of you know, uh, the public market scrutiny is probably beneficial for the organization, potentially beneficial for uh, uh, the customer as well, who wouldn't be uh, necessarily inundated with uh, what's taking place. The obvious challenge, of course, is that if you become too focused on the uh, the capital structure and if you have too much leverage, it can significantly impinge on the investments that need to be made that may not necessarily pay off in the short run, but over the long run, particularly if you lay out the future uh, that, that I'm sort of articulating and arguing, need to be put in place in order to be successful. So I think that's, that's where uh, the rubber hits the road for me because uh, uh, you don't want to do it uh, with a a capital structure that precludes you from making uh, the necessary investments. Well, Michael Dart, thank you so much for coming on our show tonight. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I enjoyed it and uh, look forward to reading your book, Barbara, as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got out first, that's for sure. If you want to learn more about Michael, you can go to atcarney.com. Up next is Ellie Fight of Drexel University and also of Wharton, and she will be discussing data, data, data. You're listening to Marketing Matters, and this is Business Radio, part, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.